Well, I'm really grateful that I didn't have to ride on Fiona. <laughs> but I am hopeful that that, that that donkey that Jesus rode on was every bit as tame as Fiona. So my thanks to Fiona the donkey and to Danny the handler for being part of this worship this morning. Um, let me just check on the microphone situation here. I think it's, am I on this? I'm on this right here. Okay, this one doesn't seem to be working. Okay, there's a little bit of an echo up here. Andrew, if you could just tone it down a little bit, that would be helpful. Thank you. So our text of scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark this morning, and this is the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the Gospel of Mark. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find tied there a colt that's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this. The Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. Well, they went away and they found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he'd looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me as we pray together? Gracious and almighty God, we do give you thanks. We thank you for the celebration that every Sabbath day is. For the celebration of this new week and life itself. We come here to receive what you alone can give. So open our eyes and ears and hearts to what you have for us this day and speak to us. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, today on this Palm Sunday, we conclude our six-week sermon series that we've been engaged in on the six great ends of the church. And the final of those six great ends is the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. That kingdom was on exhibit as Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem to the adoring crowds, waving palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the road before him. And our lives become a witness to others that we too are a part of that kingdom of heaven. There are some things that just get you on your feet in celebration. 
Did you happen to hear the report this week that astronomers had captured an image of the unobservable? A black hole, a cosmic abyss, so deep and so dense that not even light can escape from it. That's according to the New York Times article on Thursday. Astronomers and scientists were celebrating this week having witnessed something that has never been seen before. We have seen what we thought was unseeable, said Shep Dolman, an astronomer at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and the director of the effort to capture this image. The black hole is several billion times more massive than the sun and 5,000 light years into space. I mean, just reading the article, it felt like I was in a Star Trek episode. And the image of this black hole offered confirmation of an idea that emerged 100 years ago in the calculations of Albert Einstein. If too much matter is crammed into one place, the cumulative force of gravity becomes overwhelming and that place becomes an eternal trap. Here, according to Einstein's theory, matter, space, and time come to an end and vanish like a dream. And a century ago, Einstein's theory of general relativity ascribes gravity to the warping of space and time by matter and energy. According to the article, it's much the way a mattress sags under a sleeper. A network of eight telescopes from places like the South Pole and France and Chile and Hawaii were synchronized by these atomic clocks and then stared for 10 days at two targets. And for two years, the scientists reduced and collated the data. Kip Thorne, an astrophysicist from here at Caltech, who shared a Nobel Prize in 2017 from related research, wrote this. It's wonderful to see the nearly circular shadow of the black hole. There can be no doubt this really is a black hole at the center of M87, with no signs of deviations from general relativity, end quote. Jan Eleven, a cosmologist and professor at Barnard, simply said, what a time to be alive. I think it was that kind of discovery and that kind of feeling that brought people to the road that day as Jesus left behind Galilee and entered Jerusalem. What a time to be alive, that we get to see this. The theories, all the history, all that we've believed and hoped for is coming true. What we believed in, we are now able to witness. Our very eyes are seeing the coming of the Messiah. Here, light is entering the darkness. Here, energy is emanating from this black hole of human history. Here, life is coming from death. It's an image of the unobservable. 
So on Palm Sunday, Jesus approaches. He approaches the city of Jerusalem, and he approaches the center of faith, and he challenges both believers and non-believers. On Palm Sunday, Jesus approaches both the faithful and his critics and detractors. He even approaches his own death. But he also approaches you and me. The question that day long ago is the same question now. Will he be received as Lord? Will this king and the reign from heaven that he inaugurates be received? Or will it be rejected? Is this the kingdom of heaven that we're witnessing? Or is this just another fraud, another imposter? You know, looking back on that first Palm Sunday, that city was churning with stress and strain, full of tumult, political upheaval. Every element responded in one way or another to the approaching Lord. And the response said much more about the nature of people than it did about Jesus himself. There were children and those of simple faith. There were the thoughtful and the puzzled who wondered if this could really have been what was foretold by the prophets, who was to suddenly come into his temple. There were those who were cured of illnesses and diseases, who laid their coats before him. Those who believed in him felt their faith deepen at the sounding of this trumpet. But some actually grabbed their traditions more closely, for they sensed it challenged everything they believed in, everything they held dear. And there were some who looked on the whole parade with disdain, wondering, <clears throat> what are these religious fanatics going to do next? Each responded according to his or her own nature to the coming of Christ. Like that city, our hearts are often filled with stress and strain, divided loyalties within, we may feel that life within has just become so tumultuous, just as unsettled as that city was that day. We may feel like, like our lives are pulled in many directions, wanting to hang on to our traditions. We need to know what has been before we can embrace what's new. We too may want to keep the peace within our own souls we find we can no longer hold it together. We need something more than what we've known, something more of life and love, more of eternity within our own lives. Sometimes our lives just seem to kind of cave in on themselves like a black hole. We know from the biblical account when Jesus first looked over Jerusalem, he wept. He loved the city. He saw there its possibilities and its people, people whom he has created, and it brought him to tears. 
The Lord looks upon our lives and similarly feels every bit as much love. Perhaps mingled with that love are also tears at what we've done to ourselves and to one another. So let me just consider with you the approach of Jesus and what Jesus might find within our own souls. The crowd that went out to meet him that day was comprised of those who had known his healing, the blind, the brokenhearted, the forgiven, the quadriplegic, the mentally ill. But there were also those who were deeply skeptical, those who opposed everything that Jesus stood for, who were recipients of his anger or disappointment or criticism. And there were those who could care less about what he stood for, but wished either to disturb the peace for political expediency, the rabble-rousers, or on the opposite side, those who desired to keep the peace and cared a whole lot less about his ideals and higher values. They simply wanted to maintain the status quo. All of them streamed out of the city that day to see this one who disturbed the tranquility of it all. And I think within each of us, similarly, is a variety of responses to the one who comes to claim rule of our hearts, the creator of our lives, the rightful sovereign of our souls, to whom our allegiance is due. This Lord comes to our hearts as he did to that city, and we now must decide whether he's an intruder or a ruler, whether he's a phony or a king, whether he's self-deluded or whether we're self-deluded. And within each of us, there's probably more than one response. First, there's that kind of simple childlike faith response, waving the palm branches and welcoming him with shouts of hallelujah. We may have accepted the faith handed on to us. We may have experienced a profound life-renewing intervention at some point in our lives that continues to nourish our vision of what life can be through faith. So part of us just wants to run out into the parade and get as close to the front as possible with shouts of joy. We happily declare we're proud supporters of Jesus and those who follow him. And within us, there's something that just wants to join the parade. But also within us is the skeptic. Like the religious officials of that day, there's a longing to see more proof. We need something to substantiate these wild claims and theories. We've heard the stories. We even know some of those who've thrown caution to the wind and thrown in with Jesus and who are out there in the parade now. But we're not entirely convinced that this is the one who deserves our loyalty who deserves our trust. 
So like scientists working on a theory or the interpreters of the law of the day, we pondered these things long and hard and we begin with suspicion. A suspicion that requires more proof. Maybe a miracle in our own life. Some irrefutable evidence that will convince us. So within each of us is a skeptic who's not easily persuaded. We look upon this parade with kind of a wary eye, wondering if all these simple, faithful people may be onto something, or whether they're simply being duped by another religious charlatan. And then, of course, there's the opponents of Christ in the crowd and within us. If what he says is true, it calls into question everything I believe, everything I've given myself to. If what he points us toward is right, then we may have to give up something, some familiar and comfortable sin we've grown accustomed to, some coping mechanism we've grown comfortable with. If Jesus is who he claims to be, we can no longer live our lives for ourselves. We'll have to broaden the circle of those we're concerned about. We'll have to broaden the circle of those we love. We can't dismiss or write off other people so easily. Prejudice, selfishness, it's not tolerated by this king. We'll no longer be our own masters. There's another one to whom we'll have to answer. So if this one truly is the sovereign of all life, we'll have to lay bare our motives as well as our actions before him. There's something within us that resists and opposes this king who rides on a donkey like an intruder into Jerusalem, into the world, and into our lives. We've not asked for or wanted someone else to command us. And not everything about him is attractive, for he claims us as his own. And he judges our values and our loyalties and our integrity. And we know we don't measure up. So there's something within us that opposes this new ruler, just like those who sought to preserve the temple. It's not all good news. There'll be a change if Jesus becomes Lord of our lives. There's a new way of living that we're called to. And those of us who've grown comfortable with things as they are in our souls will be the most resistant, the most opposed to new management. 
And then finally, they're the realists, the practical ones in the crowd who merely want to restore the peace. The Roman soldiers in the city that day, they're not interested in anything particularly spiritual. They look with contempt on those who believe, believe there's more to life than what we control. There's a kind of contempt for people who do strange things like pray and worship and believe. There's life beyond this life. That there's some invisible power at loose in the world that goes beyond the powers that we all know. Materialism, selfishness, greed, force, those are the realities of life. Love will never overcome force. What matters is power. And there's something within human nature that's prepared to simply gamble over what is left of this king. The clothing left on the ground after he's cruelly hung on a cross to die. We may not like that part of ourselves, but there's a hardness within us that even Christ has a difficult time making an impression upon. We've grown cold. We've shut ourselves off from others. We accept that this is the way life is. And to hope for anything more than that, that's a fool's dream. So all of these elements within Respond to the approaching Jesus. How will we respond this time? Will we join the throng going out to meet him? Will we recognize in him the Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign of all life, the master of our souls? Will we respond with love and submission or will we reject and resist him? He comes to claim our hearts. He approaches the gate of our lives. Will we say, come in? For so long. The Lord presses on every heart in its most secret places, claiming that Jesus is Christ Christ alone, the heart's true Lord. We know the story. I mean, Jerusalem, by the end of that week, yelled in one voice, crucify him. And within us, there are several and competing voices responses but in the end we too must make one decision will we welcome this king or will we reject him and the voices within us pull in different directions until finally we decide one thing come or go Christ may have been knocking upon the inner door of your heart for years. And he will never finally depart 
unless you persist finally in rejecting him. But neither can he come in until you welcome him into the inner temple of your own heart. So you see, I, I think with the approach of Jesus, we have seen what we thought was unseeable, just like that black hole. And this week, we will look again into the black hole of the tomb and we'll discover there a source of energy we only thought might exist. But that's next week's sermon. Jesus approaches to take his place as the supreme ruler of the human heart, of all human life. How will we respond this holy week? May he find the gates of our hearts open. May he find us running to meet him with the throng of those who call him Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.